APU. American Public University is proud to present The Everyday Scholar. Hello, my name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and today we're talking to Dr. Terence Threadwell, faculty in the School of Arts, Humanities, and Education. And today our conversation is about Plato, the Republic, and fascism. Welcome, Terence. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, of course. When you pitched this podcast, Plato, the Republic, and Fascism, how could I say no? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like an absolutely wonderful topic. Very fascinating. Let's jump into the first question, which is, what is fascism and how does it relate to Socrates' theory of a justice and the just city? Well, fascism in a broad sense, without getting involved in the uh, Italian, my Italian is nil, but uh, fascism basically means a bunch of rods tied together with an axe in the middle. And I think the idea is that it's a unity with control. When we think about fascism, most people think about you know, Mussolini or they think about Hitler, but actually there have been several fascist regimes throughout history. Socrates puts forward this concept of this just city. And he's asked, what is justice? He says, well, let me deal with it in terms of a just city. I think we need to remember that in Socrates' time, it wasn't Greece as a nation. It was all these little city-states. They had their own government, their own polis, and uh, they're the ones that controlled. So he uses that concept. Well, his, his concepts are really harsh. I mean, I teach introduction to philosophy. In which case, we have Socrates in there, and we look at the um, trial and execution. Most of my students think, oh, poor Socrates. <laughs> Why was he executed? But if you read The Republic, you'll go, wow. I mean, you know, he deserved it. He really puts forward some really harsh ideas that we would find intolerable. You know, we would not stand for it. Yeah, and I love that. When you look at ancient Greek culture and civilization back then, it was, for lack of a better description, wild. Like you said, each city was its own little entity. So you had Athens, and you had Thebes, and you had Sparta, and you had the Macedonians up north who, I mean, really during the great golden age of Greece, the Macedonians were like a backwater hillbillies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. And so can you go into a little more detail of why was Socrates so harsh? Well, it's really hard to say. Socrates regarded justice. I think, let's bring another person into the conversation here, a guy called Glyco. And of all the people that uh, Socrates met in this conversation, Glyco was the one that really held his feet to the fire. Kept on saying, well, Socrates, what does this mean? Explain that. I think Socrates came to the conclusion that the only way you can have justice is by having control. You really need to control all the elements. So for Socrates, it was censorship, it was education, it was the structure of society. You know, how do you set up? I mean, it really was a class caste society for Socrates. And it's probably because I think Athens was really quite wild at the time, as you said. You know, a lot of people from outside were coming into Athens, and 
there wasn't that control then. I think Socrates saw control. That's the key to it. Now, for those who are listening and aren't as familiar with ancient Greek civilization and the birthplace of democracy, was everybody able to vote in Athens or was it only a select individual of citizens? It was very select. In Greek culture, it really was uh, the aristocracy. I mean, that's where the word comes from, the, uh, the aristos. They were the ones who had all the power uh, at a very high level. There was a controlling body. No, there was a body of people in the third rank at the bottom. But actually, they were never told anything and they were never asked anything. You know, no, no one said, them, what do you think? You know, do you want to vote on this? There was no vote there. It really was just a really an empty vessel. It really didn't do anything. Well, let me just go back a little bit. You couldn't challenge the aristocracy. They were always there. So it's a bit like you know the British system, you know, where you can vote in the House of Commons, um, but the House of Lords, they're always there. They never change. And I love it when we have conversations about like ancient Greek democracy or the English Parliament, because we realize that the types of democratic governments we have today are actually a slow evolution throughout time. <laughs> Where when you look at the ancient Greeks, like you were saying, for the average person, it was not a good deal. If you're the rich person, you were in charge, you had votes, you were invested into what was going on. But if you were one of the poor people or heaven forbid, who lived outside of the city, then you just had to go along with it. And the aristocracy, as you said, they called all the shots. Now, this leads us to the second question is, what are some fascist traits in the Republic? Censorship, education, racial purity, a strong guardian race, uh, no public ownership. His structure was um, the concept of the uh, philosopher king. So the philosophers were at the top level. If you were a philosopher, you were at the top level. He believed that there was a midsection, what they called the guardians. And that's a really interesting group. That was supposed to be the military group, uh, really strong, really powerful. And then you've got the working people at the bottom. Socrates didn't believe in private ownership. So there was no ownership. You didn't own your home. You didn't own anything. It was all provided for you by the state. Even your children, if you gave birth to children, they were put into, I suppose, uh, a children's home, a state-run children's home. And they were trained up in the ways of Socrates. But the interesting thing as well with Socrates is this concept of education. Education for Socrates wasn't given to everybody. Education was for the elite guardians, as they called them, this middle group that I think, you know, he really saw a bit much like Hitler's race, and you know, a really a pristine race of people who were perfect in every way. Pretty strong, muscling, fighters. He saw them as being the key. Education was for them. And obviously, the philosophers already knew everything that there was to know. So he trained them in two things. Gymnastics, that was one thing, which was you know, physical well-being. And then other subjects like music and philosophy. So they were well-versed in, in things. But he really kept it really to a fine point. He didn't want them to know everything, which comes into that point of censorship, you know, where he really tries to cut out those things that might come in opposition to what he believes. And it's fascinating because as you're talking about this and so many people read the Republic and read Socrates and all the ancient great Greek philosophers, but if you describe 
the governments that they lived in, most people would be abhorred. They would not want to live in a structure like that. Now, they had democracy, which is good. So there's some power to some people versus, say, just a tyrant. They're usually um, uplifted because of a, like a national emergency, correct? Right. And there were periods of time as well where there was um, a tyranny. It was complete oppression. You know, they had those periods of time, like I suppose all countries do. Yes. Yeah. It is interesting that today, you know, I don't know if it's the translation, but, you know, they, they translate it as a tyrant. <laughs> who is that person who is supposed to help us get through a hard time? But even with that translation, I remember reading that years ago, you could see how if you uplift one person to, quote, help a country get through something, they could easily take that power and become tyrants. That's true. One of the things that uh, Socrates promoted was this concept of no private ownership, because he thought to himself, if there's no private ownership, people will then look to the fatherland or the motherland and offer their life as a sacrifice. So the, you know, the guardians were expected to give everything for that city-state. Literally, they had nothing to lose which is pretty why you know, some of the ancient Greek soldiers were in the military for, for years. They had no family. When we learn about ancient Greece, we usually think of the Spartans, and it's usually presented as a very totalitarian, maybe even fascist state, where the military elite are the best of the best, and then Athens is usually portrayed as like the philosopher city. But in everything you described, it sounds like Athens... I'm not going to say it was much better because I don't want to say one was better than the other, but it's not like they gave, quote, civil liberties to people. No, and that's true. And I think really when you look at the Republic, you can see why they executed Socrates because he was stirring up. He was promoting ideas and uh, that were alien to those in Athens. And probably some of the younger people thought, hmm, that's a good idea. You know, we need to... Look into this deeper. I was just going to ask you, why was he executed? Well, at the very end of the Republic, there's a section in there where he talks about the systems, the uh, oligarch, you know, tyranny, democracy, and he talks about the failures in that system. So I'm sure that some of the elders in Athens, some of the structure leadership thought to themselves, hmm, he's talking about us. He's saying that our system is a failure. I think they saw him as a, a threat. You know, he was a threat to the status quo that was in Athens at that time. They didn't want change. They didn't want anybody to come against them. They just wanted the things to work out as they had been for a long time. And that totally makes sense. And that leads us to the third question, which we're already in. How and why does the just city fail the role of democracy, the oligarchy, the democracy, and the tyranny? And so you started talking about that, um, if you want to expand on that. In the Republic, you know, there are several things. There's one interesting point, really, which is the, his medical ethic. If you get sick and you are not contributing to society, they're going to suggest you go off to their country somewhere which is another um, a colloquial term for euthanasia. And, you know, they're going to put you down. But um, what Socrates thought was these guardians, these men who are and women that are strong, want to fight, we've got to find a way of controlling that desire, that power. So Socrates thought that mathematics was the key. He had this system, and it really is 
it really takes some getting your head around when you read it. But it was this mathematical system of really controlling the men and women completely. But he found out in the end that sexual desire could not be controlled. Remember that sex was only allowed to the guardians, not to the working people and not philosophers, just the, the guardians, this perfect people. And he found out, well, that ain't going to work. Sexual desire is powerful. Cannot control that. I know what we'll do. We'll send everybody out of the city above the ages of 10 to the country. In other words, executed. Euthanasia. We'll start afresh with those 10 and below so that we can train them in the ways of the Republic. And it really is a, a fascist system. And really, funny thing, Greece as a nation, even to this day, tends to have fascist tendencies within its government. You know, it's, it's really, really strange. Fascism and the desire for control. It seems like it goes hand in hand with human nature in the sense that when a government comes about that is fascist, I would say it's not that surprising because there's always going to be a certain segment of a population that will have fascist tendencies, if not just overt fascists. And again, we always talk about Mussolini. I always think of Franco, the quote, one successful fascist government that was not destroyed by another government. Not that living under Franco was a good thing, but he did live a life. And then, you know, countless, countless military dictators and fascists that have been around in the last several generations or out through all of history. As we're talking about Socrates, when we look back at what his thoughts, because he didn't write anything down, correct? That's correct. I mean, did he exist? It is strange that a person that has that much intelligence didn't write a single thing down. Exactly, which really, and I love how you said that, is like, did he exist? Because he would be the perfect foil to create these ideas in the, like, the works of Plato and everybody else, where like here is this person who had all these ideas and allows you to play with these ideas without, it's not me, it's Socrates. It's actually a brilliant idea. Today we're speaking with Dr. Terrence Threadwell, and we'll be right back after a short break. At American Public University, we believe higher education is not one size fits all. That's why we offer 200 modern programs that build on your knowledge and fit your schedule. Because we believe universities should adapt to the needs of students, not the other way around. American Public University, within reach, without limits. Online classes start every month. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com. And we're back with Dr. Terrence Threadwell. And so I love this conversation about Socrates and ancient Greece. And so how do we apply all these ideas to today? Well, I, I would suppose critical thinking is going to be a key to it. And we've got to encourage people to think critically. And right in the middle of uh, Plato's Republic is this analogy of the cave. Very well-known analogy where the people are facing a wall and behind them is people that are projecting images onto the wall. And then eventually one person escapes goes outside and finds out, wow, I've been told a lie. It's not the truth. And then he has to go back in and tell the others. That was the hard part because they didn't want to believe. They've been so indoctrinated. And the thing is that most countries in the world have what I call um, a foundational story. 
that people believe. They believe it wholeheartedly. Well, perhaps yeah, every now and again we need to look at some of the, these nations around and say, well, what is that? What is the fact? I mean, we spoke last time about Marx. And we think, okay, well, communism is over. The USSR is finished. You know, we still have Russia. But having been there and spoken to people, they haven't changed. There is still really that communist mentality in, in their thinking. And that's the hard part, isn't it, really? You know, you can change a regime, but can you change the thinking of people? No, and I completely agree. And we see that with the challenges of not only today, but just throughout history, like like you said, with the former Soviet Union when it fell. And of course, a great debate of, you know, why it failed, et cetera, et cetera, why communist countries typically don't succeed. But really, and then what it teaches the people, like for the current Russians out there, are they living in a country that allows them to express themselves or have freedoms? Or are they being controlled by an oligarchy, by a strong man? And then at the same time, are a lot of them just trying to live their life because they have no choice, so they just have to try to survive? And I think really people today, I always have a, a phrase, you know, don't know, don't care, don't tell me. I don't want to know. I don't want to challenge the system because there's a price to pay with any revolution. Marx didn't pay the price, um, but others who followed him to bring about that revolution paid it with their lives. Uh, and so Socrates was one of those too. You know, he promoted this concept and was uh, executed. So today, if we want to stand up against any kind of tyranny, uh, we've got to be prepared to actually give everything to it. And most folks won't do that. They'll say, no, not for me. And so here's a question is, say there is a tyranny in front of us and we fight hard and we overthrow the tyranny. Who's to say what we put in its place will be any better? Or who's to say the next leader who was that person who got us through the great struggle doesn't turn into a tyrant? That's true. Russia was a, a classic example of that, where you had the oligarchy of the czars uh, and the serfdom of the people that was replaced with communist regime that eventually became uh, tyrannical with Stalin. Is that better than what was there? Well, in some ways they had food, I suppose, but you know, that is a good question. One thing you said about you know the foundational stories of the US are very interesting, in which people believe them wholeheartedly. And for some people, they are living in the cave. Now, I oftentimes call history sometimes mythology because there's a certain aspect of our history which is a mythology. It's actually not true, but we believe it with all of our hearts. And to a point that's okay, to a point. With the USSR, going from the Tsarists to communists, they helped educate the entire population. The country was industrialized. So from like 1911 until like 1939, the country completely changed. The industrial output went up crazy. But how many millions and millions and millions of people paid the price for that? When you look at like utilitarianism, if you want to throw that out there, it is not worth it. People's lives are not worth more industrial output. No, in the case of Chairman Mao, when he came in power, he put tremendous pressure on the people to meet requirements in terms of grain, wheat and corn. And the farmers couldn't do that. They couldn't meet that goal. So they put their own food in to meet that goal. Then he said, well, we need to produce steel, iron. And so they put their machinery 
melted it down so they could meet the criteria. So what happened? Millions of people died, starved to death. It's a failed regime, isn't it, really? And I think Plato deals with that because Plato says that the one who ends up being the captain of the ship is the one least qualified for the position. And the ones that can steer the ship don't want the job. They don't want to be the captain. I love that because what I'll often say is our political leaders are often not the best of us. And I think that parallels perfectly because oftentimes when you have someone who is very reflective and thinks about others and thinks about history, they usually don't have political ambition because they don't want to put themselves through that. They don't care to make millions of dollars. They don't care to be a narcissist, (laughs) be on a stage and giving these two hour long speeches because they just want things to work. But the ones who then go on and do get the power are usually the ones that they desire it so much that they continue to get more and more power. And so many conflicts, it seems like throughout history, are just stemming from from the conflicts of like, quote, great people. And use that that horrible term from the late 19th century that, you know, guided so many people about the, what is it, the great man theory, that history is guided by the great achievements of, of certain men at the time it was men. But then those people just helped butcher millions because of ambition, because I want this little piece of land and then you have it, but I want it. Yeah. Yes, that's true. You know, the the whole concept of colonialism, imperialism, Great Britain, we we call it Great Britain, the the British Empire, but it did some horrific things. It didn't value people. It had a strong class culture. In fact, really, in some ways, that would fit almost fitting quite nicely with Socrates, this idea of the army being the ones that rule. And, you know, if, if people rebel... Well, you just massacre them. You know, you just kill them. You just terrible. Our ancestors were not nice people, for lack of a better description. Survival of the fittest means that typically those people were extraordinary brutal. I oftentimes wish that we would learn more philosophy, to learn from the past, to have a shared culture. And back in the day, quote, a lot of Europeans had that because they all kind of studied the same things. They studied Greek philosophy, Roman uh, philosophy, and they studied the Bible. So a lot of people had that common knowledge, but it's not really that anymore. And I wish today here in America, we would study more World War I history. But World War I is such a good lesson to be learned because there's a war that didn't have to exist. From your perspective, being from England, how is World War I still in the English culture? It really is not. People don't talk about it. They don't think about it. Occasionally, it will come up, you know, some some battle that took place. But very few people, I would say, actually know the history behind the, the whole European culture at that time. It just isn't discussed. It's old history. People don't want to get involved in that kind of thing, do they? They don't want to know a bit. It's fascinating. It really is. It is fascinating. And again, even just thinking about today, and these podcasts will live on forever, per se, you know, where there's the conflict in the Ukraine. You know, and you think, why are people fighting over this piece of land that Ukrainians and Russians have been fighting over for centuries? And yet, here we are again, they're fighting over it again. (laughs) And I think it's because the Ukraine itself is almost the breadbasket. It's the fertile land. It has all the minerals and the oil, whereas parts of Russia are desolate and empty. If anybody wants to learn a, a truly horrible part of history is look up the Holomador, the 
made up, and I say not made up, it was real, but then the Soviet authorities created this genocide, essentially, of Ukrainians by taking away their food. And millions of people died. And going back to the communists in the Soviet Union is like they bumped up productivity and industrialization, but at what cost? Millions of Ukrainians, millions of Kazakhstan, millions and millions of people, not even talking about the gulags and the great purges of the 30s. It is sad, so sad that they took really interesting ideas of Marx and then just twisted into, well, just brutal, brutal regimes. Mm-hmm. It's, it's amazing. That whole area of history where Marx, uh, you had Stuart Mills, you had all those people that were around, all those great thinkers who were putting forward some great ideas, warning people of industrialization, making sure that that was a benefit to the people and not oppressive. Well, you know, if we had a tyrannical government, you and I wouldn't be here right now. We'd be in the gulag. <laughs> exactly. And that's one of the things I always get very disappointed about, the political dialogue. Everybody's calling each other a fascist. And I wish they would read the history of like what a government that is a fascist actually is. And in a fascist state, you can't disagree with the government. As you said, you'd be in a gulag. And then having that open dialogue and being able to criticize no matter what, allows people to be free and more than that allows them to live you know something you said earlier where like the ancient athenian government wanted to regulate sex right so often throughout history everybody's trying to regulate something like that something like sex and just let people do what they do and you know what people are going to be happy i think uh well i think it was glycon who spoke to socrates and said well i disagree with you if you allow people to do what they want to do and he uses the ring of Ganges as example. The guy who found the ring, that when he put the ring on, he'd become invisible, and he did all these bad things. And Glycon said to Socrates, if you let people do what they want to do, they're going to be bad, they're going to be evil. And so you got the opposite thing with Socrates, who says, okay, we'll have control, we'll have this system. Which is so perfect because it shows you the desire to control, and then the inherent distrust, I guess, of human nature. It's true. In yeah. which existing and being human is a balance of assuming positive intent that the person across from you, your neighbor, are good people. And that by not controlling people, you're actually able to get more productivity and they'll be happier if you just don't regulate their entire lives. And I think that's what Marx looked at. Marx had the idea of encouraging people with a utopia kind of concept. You wouldn't lose out. You'd actually get more free time, more recreational time, less hard work. It could be a great life. It's never going to happen because in the background, there's always the tyrannical, there's always the oligarchy, there's always somebody in the background. I think Stuart Mill said, I don't mind you having a bigger piece of the pie. Just leave some there for other people. And perhaps today there are people who would say, no, I want all the pie. I'm just going to leave you the crumbs. It's true. And some people veil that in capitalism is working because I can have all the pie. But I think in a good quasi-capitalistic state, I'll say quasi, people need to have the crumbs. It allows the people with a large share of the pie to make more money. They don't make money without the average person. It's an absolutely wonderful conversation, Terrence. Any final words? Um, no, I think we mean to make sure that we don't find a Socrates in today's culture. And if we do, we need to speak up against it because we don't want that kind of tyrannical control 
And I think we find that at times when something happens, like we get a major disaster or a terrorist incident, the government, not just in America, but probably around the world, their idea is to tighten down control. And so we lose some of our rights. We lose some of our privileges. And I think we need to hold on to those things as, uh, you know, there's something to be valued. So the Constitution of America is something to be valued. It isn't perfect, and it could be worked on, but at least as a start, it's a, a foundational document to work with. I couldn't have said anything better, and uh, absolutely wonderful conversation today, Terrence. And today we're speaking with Dr. Terrence Threadwell about Plato, the Republic, and Fascism. And my name is Dr. Bureau Mercer, and thank you for listening. For more information about our university, visit us at studyatapu.com. APU, American Public University.